Well, good morning. We're so glad you've joined us for worship this morning here at Central, where we seek transformation through renewal in Jesus Christ. Christ is committed to changing our lives, our community, and our world. And therefore, that's our vision. So are we. My name is Charles Godwin. I'm one of the pastors here. We are continuing our At the Table with Jesus series today, and we're looking at another one of Jesus's mealtime interactions with people. It's another dinner party with Pharisees who were church leaders, lawyers, as well as other mostly well-respected guests in the community. My guess is most of us here would be welcomed at such a party. Off of these meals, these dinner parties would follow synagogue attendance, and they were the highlight of the week. Perhaps a bit like Sunday dinner when I was growing up. My mom or my meemaw, they would prepare after church every Sunday. Guests sometimes were invited, and when they were, they were given the choice seats right by the host. That would have been the space Jesus was expected to occupy, except he apparently lost his copy of the etiquette manual on what should happen at the table. In a very real sense, Jesus turned on its head the expected social order of people with whom you hang out. What was expected was insiders hang with insiders, the important hang with the important, and the lowly hang with the other lowly. But Jesus turns it all on its head at the table. So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the Scriptures. Holy Spirit, we pray that You would work through the Word as You promised to do, that it would not return void, but it indeed would accomplish its purposes in our hearts and our lives. Give us soft hearts. Help us not to harden our hearts and help us to see Jesus. And we pray in His name. Amen. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 14, um, verses 1 through 11. You can find that if you're using the Pew Bible on page 873. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In his book, Jesus Outside the Lines, Pastor Scott Sauls, who preached here during our 175th anniversary celebration, talks about how Jesus, besides choosing to be poor himself, upheld the dignity of the poor and needy and gave a special attention to those who had nothing. When defining his agenda with religious leaders, Jesus said he was going to preach good news to the poor, set captives free, and liberate the oppressed. The religious leaders who heard Jesus preach, and sometimes even his disciples, did not understand because they did not see themselves as sick and desperately poor. And they certainly didn't want to get messy by being involved with the throwaways and useless eaters of society. Their desire, he says, was to keep themselves free from the costs and inconveniences of love. We know that Jesus' speeches often made them mad. They drove him out of the temple. They tried to throw him off of a cliff. Saul then asked, Saul's then asked, how could they be so blind? How could they be so callous to the poor, to the hurting? And then he asked, how could we? He goes on to tell a story. He lived in New York City for a while, and he was walking down Broadway, going to work, and a woman outside of a bagel shop asked him if he would buy her something to eat. He said she was a familiar face in the neighborhood because she lived outdoors most of the time. Desiring to help her, he offered to buy her a bagel and coffee. And she responded, coffee was great, but she preferred a container of egg salad instead of a bagel. He smiled. He said, sure, no problem. But he said he wasn't smiling on the inside because her request was a problem to him. He was going out of his way to help her and she was being picky. Part of him thought she should be grateful for whatever he chose to give her. A bagel only cost 75 cents. The egg salad container cost $6. He remembers that internal dialogue when he went into the shop to purchase the coffee and egg salad for the woman. He was irritated and he fantasized what he might say to her if he were less polite and didn't have a filter. He thought, can I also get you some caviar with that? And then he says, thank God I didn't say something so cold-hearted because as he handed the woman her coffee and egg salad, she apologized to him. She told him softer foods are the only kind of food that she is able to eat because to chew on anything, especially a bagel, was excruciatingly painful for her diseased teeth and gums. He then writes, God have mercy on me for being so callous and critical toward a woman in whose shoes I have never had to walk and whose life I could not begin to understand. Something tells me, Jesus, that I would have been one of the people wanting to throw you off a cliff. We often make poor assumptions about people, don't we? We're calloused and conceited when it comes to others, particularly to the poor and needy. We think we understand their situation, but we really have no clue about their everyday lives. Saul says, quote, privileged people, which most of us are, can have a hard time sympathizing with those 
who have no idea what it feels like to be privileged. Our attitudes about the poor are often that they are deserving poor. So then does that make us deserving rich? I don't think many of us completely think that. However, there is an underlying attitude with people like us where we live, upper middle class mostly, that says the poor are poor and the needy are needy because they choose to remain that way. And the rich are rich because we worked hard to get there. And that line of thinking is full of bad assumptions. It's just not that simple. Jesus doesn't talk in those terms about the poor and needy. He doesn't treat the poor and the needy that way. And neither should we. We make all kinds of excuses for not sacrificing for and ministering to those in need. And in that way, we're no different from the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Full of pride, selfish ambition, and vain conceit. And this often plays out in how we go. If we go at all, are we going to make a name for ourselves or for Jesus? Are we trying to be honored by God and men? Or do we see ourselves as charity cases? It is a challenge not to be conceited and to truly look to others' interests. Not what we think they need, but what they really need. In this table discourse, Jesus discusses, addresses our attitudes related to ourself and to others. And as he does so, we are at challenge to examine our hearts and attitudes about ourselves and toward others. Jesus continues to love self-sacrificially by teaching people at the dinner party and us to humble ourselves and seek his kingdom, to lay aside our kingdoms and to serve and love other sinful, broken people and places and things to life. First, we see at the table that Jesus touches the untouchable. When we look at this story, we see Jesus. He goes to the house of a prominent Pharisee for a party. And in the first couple of verses, right out of the gate, we learn that the Pharisees and the lawyers apparently have set a trap for Jesus. For the language of the verses, specifically the word behold, gives us a sense that they were all waiting and watching as Jesus entered this house to see what he might do. And they set a man with dropsy right in the path of the doorway. Now, dropsy in the Bible, it's a condition that we today call edema. Or it's a buildup of fluid in the body, in the cavities, the tissues, often in the extremities. And it indicates this man is really sick. Quite likely his organs are failing, maybe near the end of his life. And not only is he sick, but also probably he is further humiliated by having this religious leader use him as a ploy to trap Jesus. For he probably wasn't invited to the dinner. Instead, he was just a prop. The Pharisees and the lawyers, they're trying to trap Jesus, to set him up to see if he will heal, if he'll do a deed of mercy on the Sabbath day. And Jesus, discerning what their plans are, in verse 3, he asks a question. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they remain silent. Why? How can they answer and not expose just how legalistic, just how void of mercy their hearts truly are? For if they say, yes, it is lawful, then they have no reason to oppose Jesus' healing of this man, but... 
it would indicate they're soft according to their strict Sabbath regulations. But if they say no, then everybody will see just how callous and inhumane they truly are. Jesus traps them in their own trap. For if there is anything a legalist cares about, it is his or her reputation. These leaders don't want to be seen as cruel, although they are, in fact, cruel. Legalists in pride always care so much about how they are seen and perceived. While not all of us are religious leaders, most of us would fit right in at the crowd and the party. And so I ask you, does that describe you? Does it describe me? Well, what's going to happen now? Jesus goes further to upend their expectations in verse 4, where Luke says, He took the man. Now that word means to lay hold of, to grab hold of. Jesus reaches out His arms and grabs this man whom they considered unclean. He touches him. He reaches out. He grabs him. It's not like a little index finger anguished touch, but he grabs the guy and he heals him. This man likely expects Jesus to treat him like most other leaders have. He expects Jesus to embarrass him, to shame him, to treat him if he is summed up in just being unclean and certainly would have no seat at the table because of how messed up and broken his life is. There are people around us like that. They may expect you or me as a religious person to treat them the way that they've mostly been treated, with disdain, with frustration, with dismissive attitudes, because that's how some other religious people may have treated them. If a person has brought shame on himself and it is a low place, humiliated, humbled, he may expect you to heap more shame and humiliation on him. But Jesus doesn't. And so let's not either. He touches this guy. He reaches out and he grabs him. It is shocking. He could have healed him just with a word. And yet he lays hold of him. It would be like some dirty, smelly, homeless drunk wandering off the street into church. Everyone would watch to see what the leaders would do. Even the drunk man himself. But instead of being ushered out the door, one of our shepherds would go up and give the guy a giant hug. Embrace him. Lay hold of him. Offer him the grace of a welcome. Talk about confounding expectations. But that's what Jesus does. He welcomes and embraces the untouchable. He grabs hold of the humiliated in his huge arms of love and mercy to offer life. And that's what he does for us. Perhaps you don't see yourself in that position. The man with dropsy, the wandering drunk, the porn addict, the self-advancing liar the secret racist, the one in the grip of sin. But that's who we are. You've heard me say this before. You'll more than likely hear me say it again. But all of us are capable of all sin. We don't all sin in the same ways, but we're all capable of every sin you can think of. And the message of the gospel levels the playing field. 
The Bible doesn't say all are sin and broken. Some are worse than others. And therefore you fall short of the glory of God. No, it says all have sinned. Every one of us. The Bible doesn't say the wages of sin is death, but some of your sins and brokenness are not that bad and really don't deserve that. So the gift of God is Jesus. No, it says the wages of sin is death. All sin. There's nothing about particular sins or degrees of sin or brokenness. All sin, the wages of all sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What the Bible also says is that God demonstrates His own love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Apart from Christ, friends, we are enemies of God. All of us. But God sent Jesus to die for His enemies. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And when our trust is in Him, when we have the sure hope of forgiveness and eternal life and reconciliation with God, and by the Spirit we're given zeal to live for Him, we are needy. We are broken. We are filled with shame and sin if we could see ourselves as we really are. And yet Jesus reaches toward us to give us life. He reaches out to cover us with His blood shed on the cross. Our needs are exposed, but rather than turn away, Jesus comes near. Rather than shoving untouchables like you and me away from the table, He grabs hold of us and He gives us a seat to receive His full-hearted welcome. But He doesn't just stop with the question or the embrace, but He goes further to reveal an ugly heart of self-righteousness. He draws a comparison in verse 5. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? Now, to the self-righteous leaders who oppose showing mercy to a sick man on the Sabbath, Jesus asked what they would do if something or someone close to them was in danger. He says a son, or maybe your ox. If your son is in danger or your ox is in danger, will you not rescue And the answer is obvious. Of course they will. Jesus views this man the same. He belongs to me. Of course I'm going to rescue my own, Jesus suggests. This man, this humiliated man matters to me. And I will save his life. Why? Because that's the kind of God he is. That is an expression of his character. He saves those society charges as untouchable. The down and out, the throwaways, the humiliated. One scholar noted, it is as if Jesus is saying to the dinner hosts and guests, it may be your kind of Sabbath to leave men hungry and disabled, but my kind of Sabbath is different. He's not saying no more Sabbath, but what he is doing is he's pointing out that ceremonial laws are intended to point people to God. A God who redeems and makes clean, not to make them holy. The leaders must ask why they will not do the same. Why will you not look on a fellow sufferer in mercy? And even on the day of worship, especially on the day of worship, offer mercy to them. And the same can be asked of us. Do we extend mercy as an expression of the character of God? 
Do we invite those our world says are of no account, no matter? Do we invite them to our tables, into our fellowship, into our lives? To whom will you show mercy today? Maybe today is a day that you would open your home in hospitality and invite someone to sit at your table and share a meal in love. Perhaps there is a homebound member that you may want to go visit. Perhaps there is a neglected person in your neighborhood that you could reach out to today. Maybe you can write a letter of encouragement to someone who is humble today. And by your extension of mercy to them, they can be lifted up to God again. Perhaps parents, today is the day to show mercy to your children by giving yourself to them instead of watching the game or your favorite show on television. Maybe after service today, you'll spend an extra few minutes lingering and take minutes to ask real questions of your neighbor in the pew. Remind them as one who knows that you matter to God that they do too, and they matter to you. Maybe there is a person against whom you hold a grudge, And today is the day to do the unexpected. To go to his or her house or call and ask for forgiveness or extend forgiveness as you've received it from Jesus. What unexpected action can you take today to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who offers mercy to the humble like you and me? Well, secondly, at the table, we see Jesus honors the humble After healing the guests, they begin to sit down for the meal, and Jesus tells a story which continues upending their expectations. At first glance, we may hear Jesus' story as sort of simple etiquette advice, but Luke calls it a parable. A parable is an everyday story that has a spiritual meaning, so we have to hear and think about it that way. And do you notice to whom it is told? In verse 7, we see it's the guests. The crowd. Next week, we'll look at this story that Jesus tells the host, but this one is pointed toward all the people in attendance. And there is undoubtedly some milling around. People are trying to figure out where to sit, and everyone wants to be near the host. Why? Because those are the seats of honor where the glory is to be found. And that's just the way it was done. That's how social status was maintained. And it's similar now. We jockey for position. And recognition. In the summer of 1986, there were two ships in the Black Sea and they collided right off the coast of Russia. There were hundreds of people that died as they were hurled into the icy waters. News of the disaster was further darkened when an investigation revealed the cause of the accident. It wasn't a technology problem like a radar malfunction, it wasn't even thick fog. The cause was pride. Each captain was aware of the other ship's presence nearby. Both could have steered clear, but according to news reports, neither captain wanted to give way to the other. Each was too proud to yield first, and by the time they came to their senses, it was too late. Now, before we shake our heads too much, we need to know that same stubborn pride is in you and me. You know it is. We jockey for position, we jockey for recognition, we want to win, we want to be great, we want to be recognized, and that's not all bad. But we must admit we are not naturally humble. We are not natural servants of others. We do not naturally take the lowest position. 
We're the same as the guest. We would do the same thing. One pastor said, see how insidious pride is? It blinds us to the presence of the Great One Himself. As I was preparing this sermon this week, God gave me a first-hand look at this in my own heart. I was in Dallas this week for a conference for which I registered. I booked my hotel several months ago. But when I arrived at the hotel, they informed me they did not have the room that I reserved with my one king-sized bed. And they proceeded to ask me if I was okay with a room with two queens. Now keep in mind, I'm one person, so a queen bed is just fine. And I smiled, and I said, that's fine. But friends, what was going on inside of me was really gross. My heart was full of pride. That monologue was saying things like, why did you give my room away? I booked this room a long time ago. What makes someone else deserve that room more than me? And then as I was studying this passage more this week, God, the Spirit, revealed the insidious pride in my heart. My jockeying for position, and in His kindness, reminded me of His love and mercy for sinners like me. Ben Franklin says, There is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases, it is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome it, I should probably be proud of my humility. (laughs) Brings to mind a story from the Peanuts comic strip in which Linus and Charlie Brown, they were talking about what they wanted to be one day. And Linus said he was going to be a humble little country doctor. He says, I'm going to live in the city, and I'll get my little sports car every day, and I'll drive out to the country, and I'll heal people. In fact, he says, I'm going to heal everybody, and I'll be a world-famous little humble country doctor. person that I heard tell the story went on to say, that's what we want to do, to be a world-famous little humble person. (laughs) And he says it's outrageous, but it's in our DNA. And we've got to come to grips with this. We've got to face our own pride, our tendency to do this. So what's the answer? It's not recognition, it's not more friends, it's not our job or achievements, our possessions, our winning arguments, our getting the best seed of honor that makes us great. As I said earlier, wanting to be great, that's not a bad want. But we just try to achieve greatness in the wrong ways. We try to find it in the wrong things. And we see in our text that Jesus, He can see the hunger for glory in the hearts of those choosing the place of honor. He can see the hearts ruled by selfish ambition. How deeply managing public perception grips the heart of these people. And maybe our hearts too. So Jesus tells this story. People are invited to this party. And what he says is, he says, don't try to sit down at the head table right away. For the host may come and move you lower down. And if you are to be honored, let the host do it by inviting you closer. See, where you sit, how you will be honored is by the host's will, the host's wishes, the host's priorities. And if you try to jostle for position, if you try to manipulate by grabbing the place of honor without the host inviting you, 
you'll end up being humiliated by being cast down and moved away. Now again, this is not simple etiquette advice from Jesus. The point is that God, the host, will not be manipulated by our pride and self-advancement. And yet we so easily long for being honored, don't we? We want to be the first in line. We want the nicer room at the table. We either want the bigger portion or the smaller portion, depending on if we like the dish. We take credit for someone else's project at work. We think, can anyone see how vital what I'm doing around this church is? Can't they see how important I am? Now, why do we do this? And we all do. When we crave recognition and honor, often we're trying to fill a hole in our heart that feels empty. A nagging sense of not measuring up, of not being enough. A place of shame that hopes no one can see the real me on the inside. And so we manipulate people so that they'll see our honor and they'll turn away from the ruin or the rot that's inside. But it doesn't work. It will never work. The hole in our heart that craves a sense of being valued and important and received will never be filled by grabbing for recognition. The filling of the hole in our hearts only comes through knowing and believing who we are in Jesus Christ. His dearly loved children, secure by the blood of His cross. You don't have to prove how valuable you are to anyone. A friend of mine says you don't have to be great by getting everyone or enough people to like you. You don't have to be the brightest star at work. You don't have to be the prettiest or the funniest. You don't have to be the go-to person or the most interesting contributor to a conversation. You don't have to be the wealthiest or the most theologically precise or the greatest philanthropist. Why? Because if you believe in Jesus, you are cleansed of your selfishness and ways that you want to matter more than everyone else. Your heavenly Father sent His Son to give His life for you. And there is no higher value that you can receive. Don't settle for something so cheap as a better seed or a pat on the back for a little recognition. Jesus calls you His child, a co-heir with Him, if you have submitted to Him as your King. We sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ. The solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. The Lord humbles the self-exalted and He exalts the humbled. It is amazing and yet it's true. The way up in the kingdom of God is down. Henry Nouwen labels it the descending way. The way to suffering is the way to healing. The way of humiliation is the way of resurrection. The path of glory and glorifying Christ is by humility. So I ask, does that characterize my life? Does that characterize your life? A life of humility rather than clawing for acclaim? The way up is down. It's true for the Pharisees, and it's true for you too. Just like in love, Jesus touches the untouchable. I want you to see that also in love, Jesus calls the people at the dinner party and us 
to realize that maintaining status and reputation will never give the life they or you long for. He offers the hope of humility even to those locked in pride. He offers it then and he offers it now. There is healing for all kinds of sinners. One pastor said their dinner party was a dinner of the damned and Jesus doesn't wish that on anyone. So he goes after their souls and friends, he's after ours too. Why? Because that is a facet of his character at work in us. Think of how Jesus is described in Philippians 2. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus, the Son of God, the one through whom the universe is made and held together by the word of his power, became a man with limitations yet without sin. That's amazing in and of itself. But yet he went further. He put his rights on the shelf. And Paul goes on to say, Being found in a human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to the worst form of punishment for criminals known for man at the time. Through his humiliation, we receive life, forgiveness, and righteousness through his work on the cross. It is the most wonderful instance of selflessness. You and I are exalted into life because Jesus was humiliated with our sin on the cross. And that Jesus is not only our example, the way up being down, but also by his spirit, he is alive in us, strengthening and equipping us to live in the family resemblance as his children. Is Jesus alive in you? Has he lifted you up from humiliation so that you can live humbly in response? The power to humble yourself to love others comes from a relationship with him. He is the fuel and His Spirit enables you to love others is more important than yourself. Won't you believe in Him today? For Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we asked for you to soften our hearts as we began this morning. And we ask for you to continue to do this in us. Help us to humble ourselves and to love others. Thank you that we can not only hear of your great love for us in Jesus, but in a moment we'll be able to experience it and see it at the Lord's table. Strengthen us to live our lives of faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.